Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Adele Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in. And the Mclemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for tuning into this week's edition of Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I've got four great guests that I'm excited to share with you this week. I've got two of the top instructors in the game as part of tonight's lineup. I've got a 20-year Army combat veteran who is now a 39-year-old college sophomore playing college golf at Stephen F. Austin University. And I've got a former tour player who won the 1976 Colgate Champion of Champions Tournament and the 1983 Bank of Boston Classic. We're going to talk about who those guys are here in just a moment. And just a heads up on the rest of the show season this year. After tonight, I'm going to be doing two more episodes before we go on hiatus for a few months. I'll be transitioning over to our football show Thursday night tailgate in November. So if you love college and NFL football, join me and my co-host Bob Lazari over on that show. We talk with the legends of the game hear their stories and insights about what's going on around the league. I'll be back over here on this show in early 2023, right around the time we start gearing up for the Players' Championship. But I'll be with you here for the next two weeks before we wrap up this season. And before we start tonight's show, I want to thank all of you for keeping this show inside the top five in the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list in their September edition. I really appreciate all your votes and your wonderful support. Next on the T is currently ranked number three. That football show Thursday night tailgate, well, we're number five right behind it. Our goal, obviously, is to leapfrog both shows into the top two positions. So please continue to vote, and you can do so daily by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. Your votes and your time is the reason why we're near the top. Thank you so much for taking a moment out of your day to support both shows. It means a great deal to me. Okay, on to tonight's show. First up is going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. I'm going to get TP's thoughts on the President's Cup. We'll get into the great week that Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, Xander Schauffele, and Max Homa had. On the opposite side of that coin, the forgettable one that Scotty Scheffler and Sam Burns had. I'll also get his thoughts on whether Tom Kim is going to be the next big thing out on the PGA Tour. Plus, we'll get a playing lesson or two from him as well. TP is going to be with me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a visit from Mark Lai. Mark played out on the PGA Tour from 1977 to 1994. He won the 1983 Bank of Boston Classic. Prior to playing on the PGA Tour, he played internationally and won the Australian Order of Merit. He was an All-American player at San Jose State. So much to get into tonight with Mark and get his thoughts on. I'm really excited to have him as part of the show He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Following him, I'll get a visit from Jonathan Shisky. Jonathan is a 20-year Army combat veteran. He served five tours of combat duty over in the Middle East. 
He was awarded the Meritorious Service Medal and the Bronze Star twice each. He was on the All-Army Golf Team, and following his retirement from the military, he's gone to college. He's currently a sophomore playing on the Stephen F. Austin men's golf team. So we're going to hear about all of that when he joins me later on in this hour. Then we're going to round out tonight's show with a visit from Golf Digest Top 50 instructor Tony Ruggiero. I'm going to talk to Tony about his journey through the game. We'll talk about some of the tour players he's currently working with. We'll also talk about his recent interview with our good friend Hal Sutton. Plus, we'll get some playing lessons, some mental approach lessons as well when Tony joins me about an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I always like to remind you about our friends over at the McLemore. As you guys know, my buddies and I were there again this year for our annual golf trip, and it was even better the second time around. Everything about what they have up there is first class. The accommodations are great. The practice facility is fantastic. got even better not long ago when they opened up their new Himalayas putting course. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And to say the course is spectacular is a huge understatement. Can't say enough great things about the place, folks. Go online to themacklemore.com to see for yourself how great it is. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, and our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed with him, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000, and Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things about the place by going online to themaclemore.com. I also want to remind you about our friends over at TaylorMade. Golf is an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made their Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a catback design and a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance through the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less than perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. Okay, now back in next on the tee with me, like he is every other week, is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Tom will soon be transitioning back to his home base in Naples, Florida, so if you want the best in the game to help you with your golf swing, go see Tom at Crown Colony Golf and Country Club. Get your reservations, get your flights, get whatever you need to get to get down to Naples, Florida, and go see Tom. If you can't get there, download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of your golf swing through that app. Please check out his website, TomPatrick.com, and give him a follow on Twitter and Instagram at TomPatrickGolf. Don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel, folks, where you can watch over 300 free video lessons. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board, and I'm a little sad to say that I'm only going to get to do this one other time after tonight for this golf season. Good evening, TP. How are you, my friend? Christy, 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 boy. <laughs> TP, how are you, my friend? Let's see. Aaron Judge is sitting on 60. He's just, he, won't, he won't hit that 60 first for me to celebrate. It's jumping up to 62nd yet. I went to Giant Stadium last night for the Giant Cowboy game. I drove all the way to Charlottesville, Virginia. And the thing I came to the conclusion when I left that game, Chris, was that Daniel Jones is worse in person than he's on TV. 
<laughs> so other than that, I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, I'd like to feel sorry for you, but I don't because you, no, you can't lose enough from me. So. I, I understand that you don't care about the Yankees, you don't care about my my, my Giants. But Christian Daniel Jones was sixth in the in the draft that year. He came out, and and I want to know what the, the the then GM of the Giants saw in Daniel Jones and made him think ten pick prospect. I. I I guess I don't know anything about it at all. I just don't. He he wasn't very impressive last night. He hasn't been impressive, and like I said, in person, it's, it's uglier than on TV. Dude, if I could figure out what GMs thought, you know, they always make fun of us armchair quarterbacks, like we don't know anything and they know everything. Look, you know, first round draft picks are a hit or miss. My Steelers have certainly swung and missed their their share their fair share over the years. So I feel your pain on that level. Oh man, let me tell you, he's so bad, it's unbelievable. He's just awful. Awful. All right, Tom, let's talk a little golf, and I got to get your thoughts on the President's Cup. It started out looking like it was going to be the route that everyone was saying it was going to be. The international team, boy, they hung tough. They had a good fight, particularly on Saturday, and and then when Siwoo Kim beat Justin Thomas in the first match on Sunday, I was like, oh my goodness, we're not going to actually blow this thing, are we? But they didn't. They hung on. They won seventeen and a half to twelve and a half. But what did you think about what you saw? Well, I, I think that one of the things that really proves to me, in in um, in small detail, is that world rankings and the way world rankings are done are, are are a bit of a joke. Listen, anybody that's playing, you know, worldwide golf on a major tour, any major tour currently on this planet, is awfully awfully talented. And, you know, to make them that big of an underdog, I understand if they didn't have the wins on their side, didn't have all the experience on their side, but these guys are really wonderful players. I mean, these guys, you know, play, you know, world-class golf across, across the continents, and, and they're not to be taken lightly. And, and maybe there was a little bit of a letdown on our part or so, but I, I thought, and to your point, they did a wonderful job hanging tough. Um, Certainly against the stacked American team, uh, and and they did themselves proud. I mean, that that was a hell of a fight they put up, and 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 showed some real guts out there. And I I think they kind of leave there with their head held high. Listen, it was an L, and I get L's don't feel good, but they they did a nice job, I thought. Tom, how good were Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas? How much fun are those two to watch when they team together? They won. All four of their matches where they were paired together, Jordan made some unbelievable chip-ins and putts, and Justin very animated and funny with his gestures when Jordan would make a big putt or when he chipped in for the win on 15 on Saturday. It seems like these two guys need to be paired together for all the President's Cups and Ryder Cups that they qualify for over the rest of their careers, but how much fun are those two? You know, you know, Chris, it's funny. When you, when you get paired with somebody who you're really comfortable with, who you're, who you're friendly with, who you feel good about. I, I, my sophomore year in college, I played in, uh, in five best ball events with one of my college teammates who I was very close to. Uh, and we, we won all five of those events that summer, all five two-man team events, amateur events. And it, it was, you know, there was a lot of juju there and there was a lot of good feelings and you had a lot of confidence in the guy next to you hitting shots. 
and you have a couple, it's the same situation. These two guys like each other. They play a lot of practice rounds together. They play a lot of golf at home together. They're, they're close friends. They, they know each other's games very well. Um, and, and they, and they, they care about each other. So they didn't go out there and play their hearts out to one another. That's just, that's just really good mojo. I mean, what I pair them together every time, just like you said, every single time. The opposite side of that coin is Scotty Scheffler and Sam Burns. I think we all thought they they were going to go out there and dominate, regardless of who they got paired against. And you could argue that Scheffler and Burns were the top two American players out on tour this year, and they promptly go 0-2-1. And, and then Captain Love sat them down Saturday afternoon for the four-ball matches. And on Sunday, Scheffler loses his singles match to Sebastian Munoz. Sam Burns manages a tie with Hideki Matsuyama. So collectively, they go winless for the event. You surprised that they couldn't come together and, and even get a point when they were paired together? Yeah, I, I am surprised, but but um, but I also understand that those two guys have been playing great golf all season. They've been grinding. You know, they, they, they chased each other throughout the year in terms of player of the year, in terms of money, in terms of titles. Um, I got I to... Gotta, believe that, you know, to some point that they're a little burnt out and a little fried at this point in their calendar year. Um, that being said, I am surprised they went winless, but, but man, they, you know, they, they've got to be exhausted physically and mentally. They've been working so hard and pushing so hard throughout the season and had great seasons individually. I think it's just a little bit of out of gas. That's all that is. On the international team, a guy that really stole the show was Tom Kim. On Saturday, he had some great play and dis- great, wonderful displays of emotion, which I love seeing out on tour. He and K.H. Lee beat Scotty Scheffler and Sam Burns, one of those losses those guys had in foursomes. Kim team with Siwoo Kim to beat Patrick Cantlay and Xander Schauffele in the four-ball round. People are predicting that he's going to be the next big thing out on the PGA Tour. Is this a guy that not only the international team can get excited about and for his future, but also those of us who have been looking for a guy with personality and who generates some excitement out there? Is it too early that Tom Kim may be a guy who ascends up to elite player status, gets up there with the Jordan Spees and the Justin Thomases of the world, and we get excited about a guy that is out there showing emotion and getting people pumped up and, and that sort of thing. Is it too early to think that that might be him in 2023? Yeah, he's, you know, he's the, in, in the team competition, he was the good guy version of Patrick Reed, you know? Um, <laughs> he was the good guy version. He, he's certainly shown us recently, uh, not even before the President's Cup, some really good play and, 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 and displayed enormous talent. This kid is, you know, He's a world-class player, and he's on the rise. Uh, I love his game. I, I love the enthusiasm. I love the passion he brings to the team. Um, yeah, he, he looks pretty good, Chris. I know. Let's not get too close to anointing anybody the next the next king of the game, but he certainly seems to have all the tools, and, and, he, and he's certainly fun to watch with his animation, for sure. And speaking of him, Tom, how clutch was Max Homa in the singles? He beat Kim one up and the singles matches on Sunday, thanks to a great birdie on 15. Max really came up big for the U.S. team. Is he a guy that, you know, on top of all the guys that, that we have lumped together for you know, sort of the, the 
the, I don't know, the best players on tour, the group of the best players on tour. Max Homa feels like a guy who's scratching his way into that crowd. You know, we, we, we paid a lot of attention to this guy, Scheffler. We paid a lot of attention at the end of the year to Rory McIlroy. We paid a lot of attention to Sam Burns. Um, if you look back at Max Homa's last two years and the body of work he's done and the steady rise, you know, he, he's very quietly played extremely well, Chris. I mean, really, really played great golf. And he always seems to be getting just a little bit better each year, a little bit better. And he, he's creating almost, it seems like, weekly a better version of himself. Um, and, and you got to like his sound bites. you got to like the personality. Um, he, he's also fun to watch. Um, he's right outside, I mean, just on the outside edges of that really exclusive circle. And I wouldn't be surprised we see Max do something really special in the next couple of years. He's playing some beautiful golf. Tom, I want to go back to Jordan Spieth for a moment. He won his singles match over Cam Davis to complete a 5-0 and week. Is this something that Jordan can build off of to propel himself into next season? Looking ahead, obviously, to the Masters in a place that we'd love to see him get redemption. Is this something that he can ride a wave on all the way up to next April, or is that just too far out to, to be able to think that you can sustain some sort of momentum or positive vibes that far into next year? You know, Chris, every time we see Jordan on this beautiful rise or just something that's very, very, you know, special, like this last week was special, and how well he played this first. He then disappoints us the following out, and then he's good again, and he's bad again. Jordan Spieth is probably the player on tour that, you know, if you put a gun to my head, I understand the least. I, I don't understand the the role coach that he seems to be on in his career. He certainly has these, these you know, weeks of absolute brilliance, um, and most of that brilliance is driven with his wedge game and his putter. Um, I, I wouldn't, he's never really impressed me with his, his ball striking, but his short game is nothing short of miraculous. And then, and then he vanishes. Then he plays, and, and, and then we'll see him miss some putts that, you know, you know, my members miss on weekends, you know, playing at the club. Um, so I don't really understand him. Um, he's certainly, you know, a crowd darling. I, I, I don't know how to even answer you, Chris. I, I don't know. I don't know who's going to show up from week to week. It's a little bit of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. And to take that a step further, Tom, his putter seems to be a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, in 2015, the guy made everything he looked at. And then he falls all the way down to the bottom and and strokes gain putting. What happens that that ebbs and flows? Let's go back to 2015. If you remember in 2015, he hit everything from 10 feet and in looking at the hole. Do you remember that? Yeah, for sure. And, and he made everything. He looked, he set up, he looked at the hole, and he made the stroke looking at the hole. And now we watch him from 10 feet and in sometimes, and it looks like, you know, it looks like, you know, my, my, my lab at home can do better, you know? Um, <laughs> he, you know, he, he's got to go back, you know, you got to go back historically and look at when I was good, what was I doing that made me good? And, why Why did he ever go away from that? I mean, he was so good in 2015, and he, that, that was his routine. Inside 10 feet, he looked at the hole. Why wouldn't he go back and say, you know what? 
how do they get away from that? What, what, maybe I should go back and try that again. Because sometimes from 10 feet in, he is, he makes this 20 or 30 footer over a hill, downhill, side hill on the fastest green in America, and he gets over a three or four footer, and he doesn't touch the cup. I, you know, I, I, that, those are things I don't really understand. You know? and, I, and I, listen, we've all been there. We, we, we've played golf competitive in our life or professionally. We, we've all done those things. But when you have a pattern that was successful, and you've documented that pattern, why, why get away from it? Why go away from it? Well, so now let's take that a little bit further, because I'm going to be asking Tony Ruggiero a little bit later on tonight, and he had a conversation with Hal Sutton about this as well. Players today, when things start to go wrong, they start to have an, an issue where it's everybody but me. Right? It can't be me, it must be you. And they start to blame the coach. They start to blame everybody else around them. Talk about that and that sort of mindset for it was working. It was going fine. And now it's not. So it's got to be somebody else's fault. It can't be me. Well, first of all, tell Tony hi. I've known Tony for a long time. He's a wonderful teaching mind. He's really, he's really catapulted himself in the industry and, He's a very talented guy, so please say hi to him for me, Chris. But to, to answer your question, you know, you know, it's my equipment, it's my coach. You know, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend. My dog doesn't like me anymore. You know, I, I think when you're when you're a uh, when you're a world class player and a golfer, you want to deflect it. You don't want to you don't want to ever think it's yourself. You want to be kind of bulletproof yourself, and you're looking for that excuse. I, I played a lot of golf in 1980 and 81 when I was at Florida Southern with a guy named Andy Bean, who was on tour at the time, and he was a top 10 player in the world. And, you know, if Bean missed a putt, you know, that he was supposed to make, it hit a spike mark, it hit a ball mark, and you look at the line, and the line was perfectly pure. There was nothing on the green. There was no ball mark. There was no spike mark. But he would never take the blame because he didn't want to damage his psyche. So I think that's a, uh, I think that's a protection mechanism that's almost, uh, almost necessary in some ways because you don't want to damage your psyche. You know, you want to have an excuse that keeps you kind of psyche clean, if you will. Um, I get that to a point, but I also feel like, you know, at some point you have to take responsibility for the action. Tom, let's switch gears a little bit. And one of the many changes that the PGA Tour has made, probably in reaction to live golf, is the elimination of the wraparound season. So this is the last year we're going to see of it. Next year... There's going to be events for players who are outside of the top 70 to continue to compete for status because next year the tour playoffs are going to be reduced down from 125 to the top 70 to get into the first round. Are we better off with the game taking a four-month break when everyone is watching football and playoff baseball in the start of the NBA season anyway, or are you going to miss the wraparound season? I've always been a uh, critic of the wraparound season because I always thought that the guys on tour um, regardless of their status, needed some downtime to decompress and, and get fresh again. And I, I thought the wraparound season, to some degree, if it continues, was going to be very damaging in shortened careers. You know, you, you've got to rest your brain, you've got to rest your body. And, and, and you need a break, you need to get away, you need some family time, you need, you need some, you know, clear the head out a little bit. I, I was never a big fan of the wraparound season. I'm not going to miss it personally. Um, I, I just, I, I just felt it, it, it was potentially very damaging to players. I mean, 
Listen, these guys did a tremendous amount of golf balls. They walked, you know, incredible amount of mileage during the course of the year. They're under a lot of pressure to perform week in and week out. Um, and they need time to decompress and rest and take some, and take some wear and tear off their bodies for a while. So I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a bad idea all the way along. TP, one more before I let you go, and I want to get a playing lesson from you. A wise guy I know, and take that any way you want, has been hammering me about short game, short game, short game for years. So let's talk about that for a minute. Let's say I'm 189 yards out from the green. There are bunkers in front of it. So I want to hit a shot. I want to bring it in high. And my 52-degree wedge is my 100-yard club. Talk about the ways that I can dial that wedge down and hit that shot successfully. Let's go. Let's even take take a step back for a second, Chris. You know, I, I had this exact conversation two days ago with a member of my Farmington that takes instruction from me, um, and I, I he was hitting some shots. It was not a lesson. I just woke up while he was practicing, and he was hitting um, he was hitting his his gap wedge, which in his case was a fifty four degree club. He was hitting it full at a target out there in the range, and he was hitting really solid shots. And, and they were kind of landing past the flag, short of the flag, past the flag, short of the flag. And the first thing I said to him was, I said to him, I said, Todd, how, how far is that flag that you're hitting those balls towards? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, so you're practicing to a target not knowing how far it is. I said, would you know how far it is if you're on the golf course? He said, yeah, I would. I said, do me a favor. Take your range finder out and just shoot that target. So he did. And I said, how far does your 54-degree club go if you hit it full? He was going to hit it about 105 yards. I said, how far is that target? He said, it's 92 yards. I said, let's see you hit that shot 92 yards. So, of course, he tried to make a swing without making any real adjustments and kind of tried to desell his arms, if you will, and he kind of chunked it and it came up about 70 yards. Not very pretty. So I said, well, you know, can I ask you a question, Tony? I said, when you go out on the golf course, regardless of what club you pull from your bag, I said, for example, how far does your seven iron go? He goes, well, it goes about 155. I said, how many times do you have to hit a drive? Are you on exactly 155? He goes, well, almost never. I said, in that, in that, that 54 degree club that goes 105, how many times are you actually on 105? He said, well, probably never. I said, so how do you hit partial? How do you fill the gaps between clubs? And most clubs, if they're, if they're fitted correctly, there's have about a 10 to 12 yard gap between. So how do you fill those 10 to 12 yards in, in between shots? And he said, well, how do you do it? I said, well, the first thing I do is I practice it. I mean, I shoot a target, I get a number, and I say to myself, okay, how do I dial that in? Do I, do I choke down on the club a little bit? Do I change my ball position at all? Do I want to change the trajectory the ball is flying at? Do I, do I you know, put more weight on my left foot or my right foot? Do I also size my back and do I also size my follow throw? What do I do in combination to, to create that, that in-between number? I said, you know, when I go to the range, I pick out a target, and whatever that target number is, I want to make that ball land dead 10 high every time. Uh, and the score, the score is really good at getting the ball to 10 high every time. They, they can control their distances. They can control their trajectories their contact quality, and their spin rate. Um, and, and amateurs don't practice that way. So you have to practice to numbers that are those awkward numbers, those in-between numbers, because they're going to come up on the golf course. They're going to come up on the golf course every, you know, every time you play golf. 
And the guy that can really control those, what I call gap yardages, can really dial in things and, and, and have more birdie putts and hit more greens and regulation. So I think making those little, those little creative adjustments are the things that separate a good player from a great player. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners again how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing on your website, on social media, and how they can come to you to get a lesson. Chris, I, I'm, I'm, you know, almost out of here. I'm, I'm heading back to Crown Colony in a, in a, in about a week or so. I'm, I'm going to be, I think my last date at Farmington is, um, October 12th. So I'll be on the road on the 13th. And I start down there on the 20th. Uh, at Crown Con, I'm looking forward to my third season there. But, you know, all the normal places. My website is TomPatry.com, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, big presence on Instagram. And, of course, the YouTube page is doing just great. And it's, like you said, there's over 300 videos there. Um, I think you should have them all memorized by now, because I hope you do. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, more importantly, how about that top five, both of those, both of these shows by the man, Chris Mascaro, it's unbelievable. It, it's so well-deserved. We love you. Um, tell Tony Ruggieri I said hi. Mark Lai is a, fame, a, 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 a fellow Naples resident. So, Mark, I said hi. And you are the greatest. I love you. I'll see you in two weeks for sure. I appreciate you, TP. You're the best, my friend. Stay safe out there. And uh, tell Denise to stay safe down where she's at as well. I look forward to catching up with you in a couple of weeks. I love you, my friend. Thanks, Kyle. Love you, too. Bye-bye, buddy. See you, Tom. That's a great Tom Patrick, folks. Doesn't get any better than TP. Make sure you're you're on his website, TomPatrick.com. Make sure you're all over those golf lessons that you can get for free on his YouTube channel. There isn't a finer person on the planet that uh, that I love, like Tom Patrick and uh, he and his lovely wife and all all the folks that are down there in the Naples area. We're thinking of you, Tampa. All the folks on the on the Gulf Coast of Florida. We're thinking about you tonight. You're in our thoughts and you're in our prayers, and you will be for the next several days. Looking forward to catching up with, with Tom again in a couple of weeks. Before I get to my next guest, Mark Lai, I want to remind you about a couple of our friends, starting with the folks over at Adele Golf. Is your driver adjustable? Of course it is. How about your irons? Didn't think so. Adele's new SMS irons give you adjustability in an iron to match your swing. These new irons come with three weights lined up across the back of the club, by moving the heavyweight to the heel, center, or toe location, you can match the club to your swing instead of vice versa. The result? Total control of the club face for more distance and accuracy. Your irons can't do this. Check them out online by going to adelgolf.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver, well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now next on the tee with me is former tour pro, now broadcaster, Mark Lai. 
Marcus from Vallejo, California. Played golf in high school at Napa High, where he never lost a match and was named their Athlete of the Year in 1970. He was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 1997. Played his college golf at San Jose State, where he was a three-time All-American. Mark finished ninth in the NCAA National Championship in 1973 and 16th in 1975. He won nine times during his college career, including the 1975 Western Intercollegiate Championship. That year, he was named Golf World Magazine's first team All-American. He turned pro in the summer of 1975. He won the 1976 Colgate Champion of Champions in Melbourne, Australia, and the 1976 Rolex Trophy in Geneva, Switzerland. Mark would go on to win the 1976 Australian Order of Merit. He played on the PGA Tour from 1977 to 1994, got his first win on tour at the 1983 Bank of Boston Classic. In 84, he shot the lowest round on tour, a 61 at the Walt Disney World Invitational. After his playing career, he became an excellent broadcaster working for the Golf Channel and Sirius XM, and I'm very honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show. You bet, Chris. Uh, heard a lot about your show, and uh, thanks for that. You brought me back some fantastic memories. I hadn't thought about those days at San Jose State for a long time. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a little <laughs> bit about it tonight. How are you guys holding up down there, Mark? The hurricane's about to bear down on you. Are you guys safe? Um, You know, I, it's getting worse as we look at it. Now, I've been through a few hurricanes here, Wilma, Charlie, and Irma was the worst about five years ago. And I owned two houses at the time, and the center of the of the storm passed over both houses that I owned. So we sustained a lot of damage. Now, this, this storm is tracking right at us right now. I mean, they've been saying it's going to go into the Tampa, Sarasota area, but in the last couple of hours, it's kind of gone. It's veered off a little bit east. So I think Fort Myers, and I live in Bonita Springs right now, even though I have a Naples address, it's in uh, it's in Lee County, which is uh, qualified as Bonita Springs. It looks like it's got a just a... a a bullet line to to Fort Myers and just maybe south of Fort Myers. So we'll see what happens. Uh, let me tell you, Chris, they really sensationalize these things uh, to the point where I think I'm going to die. You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when 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 Irma was coming through here, uh, we they we thought there was going to be a ten foot surge would have put uh, Naples underwater, and a good friend of mine named. Uh, David Hoffman, he owns about half the town down in Naples. I thought he was done. Uh, but, you know, the storm just veered off at the very last minute. We don't get the kind of surges that they're talking about. Um, however, I don't want to downplay the severity of this thing because, you know, everyone gets kind of – if you live in a trailer park, I would say you need to hide. Uh, but if you're in a nice, solid house uh, that is up to the hurricane codes, you should be – you know, in pretty good shape. But right now, for us, we're just kind of waiting till about, you know, 2 or 3 in the morning, and we'll see how it goes. But I've had a lot of friends from uh, California uh, uh, texting me and saying, hope you're okay, and uh, my buddy Ed Fiore uh, from uh, Texas, and everybody, of course, hears about this uh, nationwide because it's on the Weather Channel, which I have turned on right now. Um, but, no, I think... I think we're going to be okay, and uh, thanks for your concern on that. 
Yeah, for sure. Fingers crossed prayers up for you and everybody down in that area. You guys will certainly be on our minds and we'll be praying for you for the next few days. Mark, I always like to start at the beginning anytime I have a new guest on the show. And I read that you got your first set of golf clubs when you were nine years old. Is that when golf became the game that you wanted to play? It, it kind of was. Uh, you know, I had a three, five, seven iron. That was seven iron was the highest lofted club in my bag. Uh, I had a putter and a three wood. And uh, I played this little golf course called uh, Chabot, Lake Chabot. It was a, an executive course. And my dad, of course, just dropped me off. And, and I just did my thing out there. And I, I just absolutely loved it. It was a perfect game for me. And, you know, I just kept on going with it. And my love for the game, just as I still have the love for the game, I, I just kept going to each level. And, um, Really, really enjoyed my junior golf, which was in Northern California. I still keep in touch with a lot of my San Francisco, Napa Valley uh, friends. Um, you know, my mom has property out there. She lives with us out here now in Naples, uh, being 90 years old. But I, I go to San Fran and Carmel quite a bit uh, to, to see all my buddies uh, four times so far this year. And guys that I played my junior golf with, I'm still in touch with a little bit. And you were winning, I read, golf tournaments at age 12 and 13 years old. You go to high school, you never lost a match, I read. That's amazing. Talk about the, the success as a junior player. Well, you know, I was a skinny kid. I was um, diabetic since age 15. There weren't any other scores that I, or any other sports that I could really play, Chris. You know, um, I, I felt that golf was suited to me because I wasn't a strong kid. And all the other athletes, you know, they were baseball players, football players, basketball players, but that, that wasn't going to be me. I figured the way I could excel was, was to really beat them up, uh, by practicing and working on my short game. And, <laughs> uh, my buddies just tell me, they, I said, what was it like playing against me? They said, man, it wasn't any fun because anywhere you were on the surface, you had a threat of making it. I mean, it's like everybody else out of field playing Jordan Speed. I mean, that, that's how I played. <laughs> I didn't know where it was going, but I could putt it. Uh, but yeah, it's amazing. I never lost a match in, in, uh, in high school in my, my three years of high school back then. Our, our, you know, junior high was through ninth grade and high school was, uh, you know, sophomore, junior, senior year. So it was only three years, but I lost one point and the kid's name was Ron Asker, A-S-K-E-R. Wow. He's the only guy that ever got a point off of me, and I think he was from Santa Rosa High. But good job, Ron. I hope you're out there alive and well. Uh, but it was <laughs> it was quite a record. And then, then uh, you know, I just went through the junior golf program at, in Northern California and then, um, you know, went to San Jose State, stayed, stayed in Northern California, and, if I'd have known any better, Chris, and known how hard the game was going to be, uh, you know, when you turn pro, I, I mean, I probably would have done something else. But ignorance is bliss in this game because <laughs> if, if you knew how hard it was going to be, uh, maybe you you would uh, consider doing something else. But my, my life has been great. Um, you know, I'm in my late 60s now, and I, I still love the game and play the game. And I'm watching my kids, who are 15 and 17, play junior golf now. So it's a blast. So, Mark, as a kid who had so much success playing high school golf, I have to imagine colleges were knocking down your door 
who who all was in the mix for you, and how did you end up choosing San Jose State? Well, you're gonna you're gonna love this, and and here's the deal: because I was a diabetic, and because I hadn't grown yet in my you know junior and senior year in high school, nobody wanted me. I'm not kidding. Really? I I am not kidding you. I tried Stanford. I tried Arizona State. I tried Brigham Young. I played with the coach at Brigham Young. And the coach didn't think that, because Johnny Miller was my friend, and I was taking lessons with a teacher named John Geertsen Sr. at San Francisco Golf Club. So I played with Coach Tucker one day, and he played with another kid from San Francisco. His name was Rob O'Neill. Rob O'Neill was a tall, good-looking kid, could hit at nine miles. And I was playing golf at a different kind of level. Uh, I was shooting low scores, but it looked like the worst round. But it looked like I was a 10 handicapper who had his career day every day on the golf course. <laughs> so even though I was winning junior tournaments, it wasn't very impressive. So I never got an offer from any of those schools except for San Jose State. And San Jose State was kind of a commuter school. It, it was it was right up my alley. So. I got a full ride there, which basically consisted of about 160 bucks for tuition and 25 bucks a month for uh, books. <laughs> wow! So that was a full ride. Now here's the deal: <laughs> when I played in college, uh, I, I started getting stronger. I grew one year. Um, I mean, uh, like 40 pounds and four inches in height in one year. Being a diabetic. I wasn't able to really grow enough because I was being mis mistreated. My treatment was not good back then. So when I got to San Jose State, I had a great doctor. He helped me put on weight. And by the end of the college, uh, you know, career, I had done really well. But I will tell you this. I let those coaches know that passed over me, like the coach from – Brigham Young, his name is Carl Tucker, a wonderful guy, and I love Carl Tucker. He was great to his kids, and I, you know, we'd be looking at the board one day, and I'd be on top of the board, and I said, man, Coach Tucker, I really wish I could have played for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the coach at uh, at Arizona State was a guy named Bill Mann, wonderful guy. He was always at the board. Uh, he was doing the scoring at the board. They had a great team back then. Charlie Gibson, a guy named, you know, Arizona State had some, some great players, uh, through all the years. And, uh, so I'd go to that board and I'd, I'd look, Hey coach, how you doing? And I really wish you had returned a letter for me that, that I wrote you <laughs> back when I was uh, in high school. And he's, yeah, me too, son. But you know, we were full. So I made those guys pay. You know, and it, and it was it it was fun, but you know I didn't have any idea what was in store for me uh, down the road. Eighteen years of the tour, two years of playing, both in Australia and a little bit in Europe, many tours, and uh, here I sit back now, just remembering all this stuff that uh, that I went through, and it was it was very well worth it. Mark, you mentioned great players, and you had a lot of them come through San Jose State. I believe Roger Malfi was there and graduated right before yes. you. A great friend of the show, yes. Mark Wiebe, uh, a little bit after yes. you. But 
I mean, you had Ken Venturi and Don Levin and Bob Harris, Terry Small, Craig Harmon, Bob Eastwood, Aaron Oberhauser. Talk about the rich history of men's golf there at San Jose State. Well, I wouldn't say it's a rich history. You know, it's kind of like we were the underdog. Uh, we never had the budget that Stanford did when I was going there. Uh, uh, Bud Finger was a the coach there, and it was Bruce Summerhays after that. It was a great player. Uh, we had we made more out of nothing than anybody. Uh, one year when uh, I, we played against some of the best teams, the biggest teams, the, the Wake Forest, the University of Florida, University of Houston, and we did really well against those guys with, with nothing. I mean, Sanford had an endless budget. They had their own golf course. I mean, we just loved going to Stanford and playing those guys and beating up on events. Uh, you know, they had, they had a great history there with Tom Watson was a big boy. You know, he was, I think he was a senior when I was a freshman. Uh, but, but all these other schools, Southern Cal, USC, uh, they had all the money, but we had a lot of game back then. And uh, even when we played, you know, against Wake Forest and, and University of Florida and, and Houston and uh, University of Texas, we we still did well. We I don't know how we did it, but we did we did okay. Those days have changed. You know, now now college golf is uh, it's like a it's like a job now. You know, it wasn't a love of life. It's kind of like a job. I talk to some kids that go to school uh, these days, and they say, "Oh my gosh, it's it's a full time deal." Uh, for us back then in the in the 70s, it was not quite uh, that prestigious, but uh, still, it was fun. Mark, after you graduated, you attempted to get through Q School three times, and you were successful on the third try in the fall of 1976. You ended up finished tied for third over the course of that event behind Keith Fergus and Mike Sullivan. But along with those two in the field, you had a ton of great talent. A lot of guys that ended up playing long careers out on the PGA Tour. Guys like Graham Marsh, Vincente Fernandez, Jay Haas, Dick Mast, Jack Newton, Peter Jacobson, Don Pulley, Mike Reed, Ron Streck, and I could go on and on about the great talent that year. Talk about finishing near the top of that field and what it was like getting through the six-round Q School process. Well, I do remember one guy that missed it that year, and it was Curtis Strange. And uh, so that's how tough. Uh, Curtis Strange was arguably the best player in college golf, and he and Jay Hawes were on the same team. And I remember Curtis calling his wife, you know, or his wife calling somebody else, and she was crying because Curtis had missed it. And, uh, you know, it was just very tough. Uh, the good thing about Q School back in those days is they had it every month. So I missed it by uh, one shot the first time, by two shots the next time. And then the third time I got it was basically a year after the first time I, I went to Q school. I said, how in the hell am I ever going to get through this thing? Because this is just a pressure cooker. Um, but, you know, I blew in there. I blew right in there. It was the wettest eight days I ever played golf in my life. It was in Brownsville, Texas. Every day I kept going up we're saying, well, they certainly have to rain it out today. But, uh, yeah, I remember those days. Uh, Graham Marsh was 10 years older than everybody in the field. I mean, he was a 32-year-old uh, Australian player who had, uh, a, you know, repertoire, and, and everybody kind of knew who he was. And so 
So we were playing against guys like him, and then I think he ended up getting rookie of the year his first year. I think he won uh, it was was Hilton Head his first year. So as a thirty or thirty one year old rookie, uh, uh, Graham Marsh got the nod for that. But uh, yeah, it was basically a bunch of college guys and a few few players that tried to get through the school a bunch. And it was it was tough. Uh, they I think we had like four hundred players, and they took twenty. Uh, 21 players that year that I got my card. It, it was just never easy. Mark, you break through on the PGA Tour, get your first win there in 1983 at the Bank of Boston Classic. Coming from eight strokes back in the final round, you shot 64 to win over another great friend here on the show, John Mahaffey, plus Jim Thorpe and uh, Sammy Rachel. You go birdie, par, birdie, birdie to take the final round charge and, and, and win the golf tournament. Talk about what it was like when you finally break through and get your first win. Well, I got to be honest. I never expected to win that day. But as we kept going through the round, it was a brutally windy day that day. And I had a good start, and I kind of hung on in there. And I do remember the par 3 14. Uh The 14th was about a three iron off the tee about 210 yards, and I was a pretty big hitter, and uh, I was close at that time. They didn't have boards on every hole. They had them every, like, third hole. And so I remember hitting it on the green and free-wapping it, and I was about ready to hit a four-iron, and my caddy said, you know, this hole's been playing a little bit longer, so let, let's go with a three-iron. So I hit the three-iron, and I hit about 30 to 35 feet long, and, I, I mean, it was all over the flag. It just went long. And then I three-putted that hole. And then he said, Mark, I gave you the wrong club. And I said, yep, I've got my adrenaline going here, but let's finish this off right. So you're right. I went uh, birdie, par, birdie, birdie. And 17 was a brutally tough hole. Uh, it's like a one-iron off the tee to no fairway and a lake in front of the green. And any time you made par there, you were just counting your blessings. And I ended up birdieing that hole. And Lou Graham, who I was playing golf with that day, and, and Dan Forsman, my other playing partner, Lou Graham basically says, "Son, he says if you knock it, if you make birdie on this hole, he says you might have a shot on." It. So I remember that, Louis, sweet Lou. I hit a drive out there, and then I just ripped all over a two iron that went about 240 and wow. I hit it over the green again and I chipped it down within six feet and made the putt and then I watched Mahaffey and Fuzzy was in the hunt and Sammy Rachels who was a really good player uh Jimmy Thorpe was another good player so I finished about an hour ahead of those guys because I was so far back and I remember going to the putting green uh in front of the clubhouse and just saying, how am I going to occupy myself for the next hour? And uh, I just kept thinking, you know, things like this don't happen to people like me. There's no way I'm going to win. Uh, I'm going to have to, you know, just get ready for that. And sure enough, uh, as soon as uh, I heard a bunch of people clapping and all that stuff, I figured that somebody had buried the last hole or done something crazy. And as I'm walking back uh, to the eight green i said who won the thing and they said oh some guy named why <laughs> <laughs> so those guys uh never made birdies in the last couple holes so i got my 
got my first win and uh, one in Australia, one in Europe, but that was my first and only win on the PGA Tour. It was more than I ever thought I could do. And that 83 season, you finished tied for second at the Pensacola Open, tied for third at the Western Open. You had two other top tens as well. What clicked that year for you? Yeah, I think it was self-belief. Uh, you know, you play 77. That was my first year. I finished 100th on the list, one ahead of Arnold Palmer. How about that? He finished 101st on the list. Then the next year, my sophomore jinx. I mean, I barely, you know, barely kept my card that year. And the third year, I had a chance to win. I almost won on my home course in Napa, Silverado Country Club. And then ever since then, I said, you know, I should have won that tournament. And I really learned. It took me three or four years to learn how to play the tour. Uh, we were traveling in cars those days. And, uh, you know, we weren't flying to a lot of events. So I got comfortable out there, and I, I got a little bit healthy, and I learned how to play. So that year was kind of like my coming out year, and I had another year in 84 and some other good years after that. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's just a weird game. You never feel like you belong because you're always playing against guys like – I remember playing with George Knudsen and Lee Trevino in the Houston Open one year. And I played with Jack Nicklaus and Lee Trevino in the same day in, in the Canadian Open at Glen Abbey. And then I'm playing with, you know, Tom Watson and Tom Weisskopf one time at, at uh, San Diego. And I'm saying, you know, how can you beat guys like this? I mean, this this is what you have to do. And so you look at yourself as kind of like a high school, college guy, and now you're playing against these these guys like Watson. You know, and you're saying Trevino, guys that are, you know, Hall of Fame guys. So you somehow have to convince yourself that, you know, you're as good as them. You're playing against them all the time. And you're going to have to beat them. So that's, that's basically what happened. So, I mean, for everybody playing in college right now, they're coming out of college and they're beating everybody. But back in my day, there weren't a lot of guys coming right out of college. Maybe uh, Hal Sutton at Centenary. Uh, he came out and won immediately, and so did Ben Crenshaw. But outside of that, there weren't that many guys that could really man up uh, with the big boy. And it was a little bit intimidating going out with those guys. So I think after about six years, you know, I said, okay, it's time to, you know, cut bait right now. And so it, it happened for me. And I uh, stayed out there till 94. And then uh, had some injuries, which which happened uh, in your 40s. And then uh, I retired prematurely. I still had a, a year exemption on the PGA Tour and decided to forego that because I had a major hand injury, and it was going to take me a couple of years to get back. And I, I went to work at the Golf Channel, which was just starting out, and I loved it. And I never went back and took up my exempt status Tour. I just stayed with Golf Channel for 18 years. Glad I did. Mark, just a couple more before I let you go. And you, you mentioned that you had another good year in, in 84. Like I mentioned in your intro, you shot the lowest round on tour that year, a 61 at the Walt Disney Classic on the Palm Course during the third round. Were you aware of what you were shooting? And did, did 59 ever start creeping into your mind? It only crept into my mind when I was hitting my last shot on the final hole. Now, the, uh, the I was 
I was in the middle of, of not playing very well. You know, I had shot, I don't know, 70, 71, or maybe 71, 72. And at Disney, you have to go low out there. So now in round three, they make a cut, and I'm saying, man, I've got to shoot something really good, but I'm at the Palm Course, which if you talk to players back then, the Palm Course is by far the hardest golf. Okay? That Magnolia was the course we played on the final round. And you played the Magnolia, the Buena Vista, and then the Palm Course. And then once they made the cut, you went to play the Magnolia Course. Well, that night, Saturday night, I'll never forget. I was watching a, a interview from Brad Fax, who shot, it was on, excuse me, on Friday night. Uh, so I'm watching this interview with Brad Fax, and he just went around on, on Friday and shot 63 on the Magnolia. And I, I just said, how can, I'm shooting 71, 72, and I said, how can anyone possibly shoot that kind of number in golf? How can that possibly happen? Well, dang, the next day on the toughest course of the three, I just got out there and look, Chris, anyone that plays this game for a living, it can happen because it happened to me. I went out to the Palm Course and I just hit it perfect. And I made some shots. I actually hold a, a shot from the fairway from 140 yards. I, I hit a, a couple of par fives, made one eagle. And I was just make. I was a birdie machine that day. So, and I was playing with amateurs. So I got on the last hole and uh, my caddy was a guy named John. He worked for me at the Masters that year. Uh, when I dang near won that damn thing. But, uh, I said, how do we stay? And he says, Mark, he says, you're 11 under out there. So I hit my tee shot out there, and I'm over this wedge shot, and it's about 130 yards out of the rough. And it, that's the first time it dawned on me that I could shoot 59. And that ball flew about six inches from the cup. Wow. And it bounded on long, uh, about 20 feet by, and then I two-putted for my 61. So... For all of you out there that think you can't play dead, just remember it only takes one round to get it going. So I went uh, shot the 61 that day and 69 on the Magnolia on Sunday and finished seventh in the tournament, which was way out of reach for me about then because I was in the middle of a slump. So anyway, don't get discouraged. This game can surprise you. Mark, one more before I let you go. And I used to listen to your show on Sirius XM all the time. And there was a soundbite during the intro of the show where you said something to the effect of, you can tell yourself all you want that it's just another golf tournament, but it ain't. I speculated you were talking about Rory at Augusta National during that fight. Do you remember that and what you were referring to? Absolutely, I remember that. Because, you know, we play in a lot of tournaments each year, but there are special tournaments out there. Okay, once the players, once the the U.S. Open, but the biggest one to me was the Masters. And you can talk about it all you want after the round. Well, it wasn't quite happening. It wasn't my week. But you know something? That's one week you can't get a pass on is the week of the Masters. And uh, Rory had his shot there. (laughs) That's what I said. 
you may pretend it's another tournament, but it ain't. And that's the truth. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's one of my all-time favorite sound bites. Mark, let our listeners know, how can we stay up to date with what you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's over social media? I'm doing nothing except social media. And uh, I basically had my time on the air. Uh, but I do have a, a little spot on uh, Twitter. It's called Let It Fly, F-L-Y-E. And I get my licks into all these people that, that, that you know, hate me. They hate, they, 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 that's okay. My deal is, is that I take a side and you already are going to lose half of the people out there. if You take a side. If you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat, you say you're a Republican, you're going to lose half of your fans. If you say you're for LIV and you're not, and, and you're, you know, over the PGA tour, you're losing half of your fans. So I take that with a grain of salt. I always tell it like I feel it, whether it's popular or not. And that's how I take care of my uh, Twitter feed. And uh, that's what I do now. And in all of my interviews, I'm, I'm, there's nothing that makes me go with the way the wind is blowing. So I think that's why people have, have uh, listened to me and watched me over all these years. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night, especially on a night like tonight down there in Naples. But I can't thank you enough for coming and being a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope this is the first of many visits that you'll come back and share your stories and insights with us. Yeah, thanks a lot. And keep doing well, okay? Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks, Mark. Stay safe down there. That is the great Mark Lai. At Let It Fly on Twitter is where you can follow him. And like he said, fly is F-L-Y-E. So at Let It Fly on Twitter is how you can stay up to date with Mark. And we have barely scratched the surface of this man's great career. Didn't get into the 1984 Masters. Wanted to do that. So hopefully we get the privilege of having Mark back on the show soon. And, and our prayers and thoughts for everybody down there where Mark is at in the Florida Gulf Coast, particularly in the Naples area, as this storm comes on shore. Staying up to date with Mark, I'll make sure that he is safe and report out to everybody. But thanks to him for coming on the show, and hopefully we are privileged to have him back on again real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Jonathan Shusky, I want to remind you about a couple of more of our friends, starting with the folks over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections. With fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies. And their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection, where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two underperformance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shields sports stores, all PGA Tour superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at twounder.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R.com. Two Under, performance in your pants. Use code NEXT20, that's N-X-T-T-E-E-20, for a 20% discount on the Two Under website. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Ride. We deal with a lot on the golf course, whether you're teeing off in front of a crowd, 
hitting a four iron after a rain delay, trying to figure out wind direction, or second-guessing club selection. It's easy for your mind to race. That's exactly what drove Golf Pride to create the all-new CPX. It's made with a unique EXO diamond quilted pattern, reducing vibration in your hands on every shot. The EX diamond quilted pattern really helps your hands sink into the club on every shot, giving you maximum comfort because when your hands are comfortable, you're comfortable. CPX is available now on GolfPride.com or at your local retailer. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Jonathan Shusky. Jonathan is a retired infantryman from the U.S. Army, served 20 years as an Army leader, growing in rank and responsibility over that time. While in the Army, he was on the All-Army Golf Team. He was a plus-three handicap and a three-time Fort Benning Club champion. After retiring from the military, he went back to school, first at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, and now at Stephen F. Austin University. At 38 years old, not only did he go back to school, he was signed to play on the golf team by Christian Brothers coach Michael Bryce, who is a guy I've been following on social media for several years, at mbrycegolf1 on Twitter. You can follow Jonathan at j underscore shusky1, and I'm honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Jonathan, I see you had one of those I'm old moments in the cafeteria at school when Careless Whisper played on the speaker. Did you get some funny looks from the younger generation when you sang along? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I get a lot of funny looks walking around campus, um, mainly because, you know, I think at first glance, folks look at me and they're, they see me wearing normally like a, you know, one of the SFA polos or, or whatever. And, and they probably immediately think that guy coaches something or he's a professor or whatever. But then they see that I'm wearing a backpack and I'm walking into class with them. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I get, I get a lot of weird looks, but that day, oh man, but when that song came on, the, the sax solo hit and, uh, and I, and I watched this group of students just over to the left of me, and they all just kind of looked around at each other like, what is this? And probably <laughs> 20 seconds later, I was playing air sax, and I was, and I was kind of humming along. And it was, it was, uh, it was just one of those moments where I, um, yeah, it really sank in that like I'm 40 years old walking around a college campus. Um, and, and, and like I've got a 19 year old son that's a sophomore uh, at Columbus State University this year, and so I, you know I'm I'm old enough to be any one of their dads, you know. And uh, it's a uh, but it, it's cool. I think uh, you know a lot of my classmates and the folks that have gotten to know me and and folks from the other athletic teams, um, like we're becoming fast friends, and 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 it's cool to be able to share some of my experiences and stuff. So I, I think I'm starting to grow on them a little bit. <laughs> no doubt. Jonathan, I, I read when you were growing up in North Carolina that you started playing golf at the age of twelve. Is that right? Yeah, it was about it was about that age. Um, honestly, I had never really thought much about golf. Honestly, um, there was there was a group of guys at my church, uh, a couple of older guys, and, and like their sons, and they they would go out and play on Sunday afternoons when we got out of church, and you know they might meet up you know, during the week and play, you know, a twilight round or whatever. And so eventually I asked my dad, I was like, you know, can we get a set of clubs and, and go play? Like I want to, I just wanted to be kind of, you know, part of the group, you know? And, um, 
And so we did. Like I, I remember, like we went to a pawn shop and just found a set of clubs, and they were too big for me, and I didn't care. I just wanted to be out there with with the guys, and uh, and so I started I started doing that. And, you know, we had a little, we had a couple of really good courses right there around like High Point, North Carolina, where I where I grew up, and uh, I, I'll never forget. We had a little par three course there. It was a nine hole course. The the longest hole on the course was like a hundred and. 15 yards and it's, it's you know just a little a little pitch and putt kind of place and that was that little place is really where I fell in love man because I we would go out there especially on the weekends me and a couple of the the other younger guys we'd get dropped off out there at eight o'clock in the morning and we'd just walk all day long until it got dark and and our parents would come and pick us up and um and man we just we just loved being out there and, and loved hacking it around or whatever and and as the years went by, you know, I was I was probably good enough to play high school golf. Um, I, I just didn't know it, and and I I, I I didn't believe it myself really. Uh, so I didn't play high school golf. Um, but like I, I broke par for the first time when I was 17 years old, and and I felt like I was starting to you know kind of figure things out, and and um, I, I didn't know anything about competing in golf, so I, I didn't play in any junior tournaments or anything like that, and. Um, and and I also remember around that time was you know when Tiger Woods was kind of you know first coming on the scene and and you know I remember when he won the the U.S. Amateur that third time and I and I remember watching him win the Masters in '97 and 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 he was a big part of why I fell in love with the game too. It's just like I remember like as a kid golf was it kind of had that reputation of just being like an old man sport, you know, unless you were playing on the PGA tour or whatever, but tiger had this way that like, it just made golf seem fun to me uh, as a teenager. And, and so I really fell in love with the game and, and uh, yeah, that was just kind of how it started, man. That little pitch and putt course, it's not there anymore, but, but gosh, man, we had such a good time walking around that place all day. You competed on the All-Army golf team, and you won the All-Army trial camp in 2013. Talk about the All-Army team, what that is, and then going out and winning that event. Yeah, so the All-Army team, you know, a, a lot of folks, when I tell them I was an infantryman, and then I tell them I played on the All-Army team, they're like, well, how did you have time for that? It's, it's, so the All-Army team's not really like your job or anything. It's really just a, it's like a three-week deal total. Um, so you go and play the trial camp. Um, the top six guys make the team and then you get a few days to practice and, and kind of, you know, get all your gear and all that stuff. And then you go play the armed forces championship, which is a four day tournament. Um, uh, and then you're done. You go back to your unit and, and go back to work. Um, but it's a really cool thing. And I was fortunate enough to do it a few times. Um, in 2013, that was the first year that I got to go and play at the trial camp. Um, it's one of those things where you, you have to kind of submit a resume and I didn't really have a golf resume. Like I said, I'd never really competed or anything. And, but I thought I was good enough to do it. And, uh, I had applied a couple of times before and, and didn't get a response, didn't get invited. And so in 2013, I didn't get invited and I sent an email to the director of the all army program. And I, I don't know if I really believed it or not, but I sent him an email and said, look, I'm, I don't understand why you won't invite me. It's like, if you invite me down there, though, I'm going to win this thing. And so it was literally only like two hours later I got a response, and he invited me to the camp. 
And so I got there. Uh, we played a couple of practice rounds, and uh, we had a we had a meeting the night before the trial camp began. And I remember after that rules meeting and everything, he pulled me to the side and he said, "Look, man, um, I'm I'm really glad you're here, and I'm glad this all worked out." He said, "But I didn't really like that email, and I'm gonna tell you right now, if you don't win this thing, I'll never have you back." Wow. Um, and I, and I, I found out later that he was joking with me, um, but I didn't know that at the time, and so. Man, I went out and played as hard as I could for four rounds, and uh, and I did. I ended up winning the trial camp, and uh, I, I will say this. There's part of me that, like, I feel like sometimes, at least at that point, that was the worst thing that could have happened to me because I really didn't know anything about tournament golf, didn't know anything about competing, and I was a lot like uh, what Mark was talking about when he said he started college golf and he was playing well, but he he always looked like a 10 handicap that was just having a career day. Like that's what I was when I did that. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, I was fortunate to win it that year. And then, you know, went and played in the armed forces championship, did that a couple of times. Um, the last time being in 2019, uh, I was really fortunate in 2019. I got to play with, uh, an air force captain named Kyle Westmoreland and folks might know him. He, he, he earned his PGA tour card this year. Um, which was a, a really cool story, and it's good to see, you know, guys like him and uh, and, and uh, Tom Whitney's another guy that's played a lot on the the Corn Ferry Tour and some other stuff. And but yeah, I got to meet some cool guys and, and play and play some golf with them, and uh, yeah, it was a great experience. And Jonathan, like I mentioned in your intro, you won the Fort Benning Club Championship three times. The course there dates back to 1923, so almost 100 years old. Designed by Robert Trent Jones Sr. Talk about the rich golf history there at Fort Benning. Yeah, Fort Benning is always going to be really special to me. It's you know it's the home of the infantry, and that you know that's where I went to basic training and did all that. And uh, I, it was really cool that I got to finish my career there where I started it. Um, but but that golf course, if you go inside, they've got a, a a big like a board or a plaque or whatever you want to call it on the wall that has all of the past uh, club champions, and so. If you go in there and look, if you go and look, I believe it's 1933, uh, General Omar, at the time he was a major, but General Omar Bradley, his name is on that board, but it's not because he won. They put his name on there. Um, in 1933, he was the runner up. And so my, my claim to fame at Fort Benning is Omar Bradley might have a fighting vehicle named after him. But by God, he didn't win the Fort Benning Club Championship three times, um, and, and I did. And so, but no, it's it's really it's really cool to walk in, walk down that hallway and, and and to see your name on there three times, and and some of the great names that are on there like Omar Bradley, and and just knowing some of the people that played golf on that golf course before me, man, like some of the, you know, some of the great leaders in the army that went through there and, and played that course, and then yeah, I mean it's. It's really neat to have my name up there, and, and I was really proud um, to, to win that tournament three times. It was it was something that was really special, always will be. When you retired from the service, I read that you had no shortage of college coaches calling and texting you because even though you're a little older than the traditional college freshman, you still had four years of eligibility there. And talk about that and why Michael Bryce, good friend, we've been following each other for years on Twitter, why he and Christian Brothers University was the right, at least first choice for you. Yeah, it was, you know, Coach Bryce, um, 
you know, there are a lot of folks that think that I've got like the hard feelings about how everything kind of went and, and, and how I ended up here. And, and I don't, I, I guess, you know, me transferring, it's a long story that I won't get into, but coach Bryce was great for me. Um, I, I, I felt like I improved dramatically from the time I stepped on campus last year to the time we played at conference. Um, you know, I, I felt like, like I didn't even feel like the same player. And, and, and that was due in great part to him. I mean, he was a really good coach and, and was good for me. Um, I'll tell you, there were a lot of coaches that had a lot of interest. Um, and then there were some that just called and, and wanted to help out any way they could. And if they could help me figure something out, they wanted to do that. They, you know, maybe, maybe not interested in me being there because they had too many guys or they were full or whatever, but they wanted to help. Um, and then, I made the mistake of going and playing in some tournaments like over the winter and kind of that over that fall before I decided where I was going and I played really bad and and some of those phone calls stopped um <laughs> but coach Bryce coach Bryce was the guy that like you know he he kind of hung in there with me and and told me man if you come up here like I'm going to make you a better player and, and we're going to do some some good stuff and and um and he was true to his word um and so I you know I really appreciated that that, that they took a chance on me. Um, and, 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 and I get that it's cool. Like the 40 year old guy that's, you know, retired from the army, it's a cool story. And, and that, that's something that's neat for your university or whatever, but he never approached it that way. Really for him, it was just all about the golf. And, and he really believed that I could come there and help the program. And, um, and yeah, so, I mean, it was great. I, you know, the transfer thing, i I really just wanted to get somewhere closer to home. Like last year was, the, there were some times that were tough being away from my family and, and my wife and kids went through some stuff that, you know, I, I really probably should have been there for and they kind of got through it and, and I didn't want that to happen again. And so tried to transfer and get somewhere closer to home and nothing really panned out the way I thought it was going to. Um, and so then I kind of, at that point I was like, well, I, I still want to play college golf and, and my wife told me I'd be a fool if I didn't, and I usually listen to her. So, so I started looking around and and uh, and talking to some coaches and, and Coach Trader here at SFA. Man, they they were awesome from day one and said he had a spot and wanted me to take it. And and here we are, like we're in Nacogdoches, Texas. And man, I'm I've, I've loved every second of it so far. Jonathan, just a couple more before I let you go and. You served five tours of combat duty. You, you won the bronze medal twice. I have to imagine making or missing a five-foot putt to win a golf tournament doesn't have the same perspective to you as it would for most of the rest of us that were stand, would stand over a putt like that. Talk about how your time in the military, your time facing combat duty, and now some of the things that, like I say, the pressure of college golf probably doesn't mean the same to you. Yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, I, I, I'm not going to say that it doesn't mean the same or that the pressure's not there. It's just a different type of pressure, I guess. Um, you know, I, like, I still feel butterflies standing on the first tee like any other player or standing over a, a putt that matters or whatever. The, the difference, I think, between me and, you know, an 18-year-old freshman is just I've got some perspective to lean on. And so while that 18-year-old kid stands over that shot, and thinks, man, like this, if this doesn't go in, it's the end of the world. I stand over that shot and I, and I know it matters and, I, and I'm nervous about it. But I also know that at the end of the day, like 
it's going to be okay whether you make it or miss it. You're going to go back home. And, and there were days in Afghanistan where, you know, those make-or-break moments, like, that that could be the difference in going back home or not going back home, you know. And so, um, yeah, I think it, for me it's just about having some perspective and, and understanding that, yes, while, while this is really important, what I'm doing here, um, it's not it's not the end of the world if it doesn't go well, you know. And and, and I think that, that helps, you know, some days that, it hasn't helped much lately. I'll be honest with you. I've, I've played some bad golf the last couple of weeks, but, but we're, you know, you keep getting after it and, and, uh, and just try to keep that perspective and, and keep a good attitude. And that's what I'm doing. Jonathan, you had a top 10 finish last season, four top 15s, and you shot a low round of 67 while you were at Christian Brothers. How did that fit in for your expectations for yourself? And for your first year being out there playing college golf? Yeah, I'll, you know, I struggled a lot in the fall. I, I didn't play very well in the fall. I was I was good enough to travel to tournaments, and then we'd get to the tournament, and I didn't play well. Um, and, and and in the spring, you know, finally some stuff started to click, and some of the stuff that Coach Bryce and I had worked on finally finally started to – I started trusting is really what the difference was. Um and, and yeah, I, I played a little bit more to the, to, to my expectation of myself. Um, you know, I, I, I was, I, there was a tournament that our first tournament of the spring we played in Tunica, Mississippi. Uh, and it's only about an hour and 15 minutes up the road from us there in Memphis. And that first, the first day we go out there and it's, you know, it, if it hit 50 degrees that day, then. Uh, that was that had to have been as high as it could have gotten, but it was you know windy and kind of raining sideways and and uh, I, I remember I played that day and I was wearing shorts and I had on a, one of those like kind of the short sleeve windbreaker rain jacket kind of things and um, and I and I just remembered you know like I talked to coach after and and I told coach I said honestly I said I was a little bit cold at times I said but I wasn't gonna let those guys know it I said. You know, I just, I wanted to, mentally, I thought it made me tougher that day. Like, just, that, hey, like, we're going to battle through some adversity, and I'm going to go, and I wanted those guys to know, like, you might be a better player than me, and you're, you know, young and can hit it a mile, but you're not tougher than I am, and I'm going to hang in there. And I did, and, and I really did that all spring, and got to conference, and uh, finished 12th at conference, and, and played some good golf, didn't make a lot of putts that week, but, you know, played good enough to, to lead the team that week, and yeah, it was the the spring was really good, and I, I again, I, it, it was really just a matter of just trusting myself. You know, I think in the fall, I probably had a little bit of, uh, I think they call it imposter syndrome. You know, and I, I, there were probably times that I just felt like I didn't belong there or whatever. Uh, but in the spring, I don't know. I, I'd love to tell you what it was, but something clicked, and I I really felt like I did belong there, and that I could compete with those guys, and and a little bit of self belief goes a long way, and uh, and it, it certainly did for me in the spring. Jonathan, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing up there at Stephen F. Austin and follow you on your website and then on social media as well? Yeah, so I, I do have a website that I'm really terrible at updating, um, but uh, Jay Shusky Golf, you can go there, uh, and then on Twitter, J underscore Shusky1. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter and, and I try to, I try my best to, you know, anybody that interacts with me, I try to interact back with them. And, uh, I understand that there are a lot of, 
one of the cool things about this, there's a lot of, you know, 40 and 45 and 50 year old guys that I get messages from and they're like, man, it's super cool what you're doing. And I love seeing your posts. And, and it's one of the reasons that I try to be active on there. Cause I know there are a lot of dudes that like, I'm fortunate, like, a lot of, you know, when you're 40 years old, you don't get a second chance at this thing. And, and I'm, and I'm fortunate that I do. And, and I understand that there are a lot of guys that, uh, that really like following that. So if you, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna post a lot about what we're doing golf wise, and I'm gonna post a lot about what I see and and over here on campus, and <laughs> some of those are funny <laughs> posts. And um, so yeah, that's you know I'm, I'm active on there, and, and I and I'll I'll gladly have a conversation and say hi, just drop me a DM or whatever, man. Well, Jonathan, you're a treat, my friend. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of this show. I hope this is the first of many visits. That we get to hear about uh, your college experience, and then you go on from there. But you're fantastic, my friend. Absolutely, I, I appreciate it, and thanks for having me. I, when I looked at your lineup tonight and, and saw the guys that you were having on, I said, "Man, one of these things is not like the other." I've I've got my work <laughs> cut out for me to live up to this bill. So, so hopefully, I did. I appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely, me on. you did. Take care, Johnson. Best of luck this season. We'll catch up soon. All the best to you and your family. All right, thank you. See you, Jonathan. That's Jonathan Shusky. And again, folks, what a tremendous athlete. What a tremendous guy. And you heard the enthusiasm in his voice. There's nothing better than that. You know how much we love guys that come on and have the enthusiasm for what they're doing and what they're a part of. And that's oozing from Jonathan. Hopefully he has a great rest of the fall season there at Stephen F. Austin. And we get the privilege of catching up with him again uh, before too long. Before I get to my next guest, Tony Ruggiero, I want to remind you about a couple more of our friends, starting with the folks over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. The popularity of a cavity back wedge that can help golfers has grown fast. These are difficult to make, and Cleveland Golf is the only major vendor now out there making them. The CBX Zip has many features straight from the Tour RTX wedge, including zip grooves and a laser face for more spin around the greens from the fairway or the rough. Zipcore's lightweight density core moves the center of gravity, not just in the middle, but slightly forward towards the toe, for forgiveness on mishits and a solid feel on all shots. The dynamic sole on any loft helps turf interaction, which is at the heart of our Chunk It A Little Less TV ad. Hate your wedges? Can't get the spin you need to hit it close? Swap out your wedges for a set of the CBX Zipcores and save strokes immediately. There's a reason why CBX won gold this year on Golf Digest Hot List. For more information and to get yours, go online to clevelandgolf.com. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Tony Ruggiero. Tony's been named a top 100 instructor by Golf Magazine every year since 2017. Golf Digest did them one better by naming him one of their top 50 instructors. 
He's worked with tour players like Tom Kite, Boo Weekly, Lucas Gulliver, Sepp Straka, Zach Sucher, just to name a few. Tony is from Mobile, Alabama, played his college golf at St. Mary's University, where he lettered twice. He was a member of the Heart of Texas All-Conference team. He transferred to Sanford to be closer to family. He lettered two more times when he was there. He earned his degree in public administration from Sanford. Tony has been the director of instruction at the Country Club of Mobile and the Santa Rosa Golf and Beach Club, as well as spending several years at the Hank Johnson School of Golf down at our good friends, the Sandestin Golf and Beach Resort. He now has his own academies in downtown Mobile and at St. Simons Island here in Georgia. And I'm honored Tony is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tony, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. I appreciate y'all having me. Uh, it's it's an honor. And, uh, man, uh, following a great guest, you couldn't, you couldn't hide the enthusiasm of your last one. And he had a lot of words of wisdom there that I think any golfer, but especially young golfers, could benefit from. I mean, I think that those young guys playing on the team with him, uh, I mean, they're getting a real treat. They're getting a lot of life lessons and lessons about what it takes to be successful in anything, much less golf. 100% agree with that, Tony. And Tony, you and I, we got a lot of synergies. We both partner with Strixon. The Sandestin Golf and Beach Resort have been friends of the show for many years. Love playing those golf courses. And you recently had Hal Sutton on your podcast, and Hal is one of my all-time favorite guests. So all of those forces kind of pulled us together. So uh, we got a lot going for each other. Absolutely, I you know I guess you know Sandestin <clears throat> when I when I got the opportunity to go teach there at Sandestin for Hank when Hank had the school there uh, for a bunch of years it was a big break in my teaching career and Hank was so instrumental in, in the little bit of success I've had and 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 was a great mentor and so it was a huge opportunity I spent you know I spent nine or ten years down there between uh, Sandestin and then over to Santa Rosa at the, at the beach club there and was a great run and a great, you know, great stop in my career and still a lot of friends down that way. And, and, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. And, uh, you know, and, but Mobile's home and, uh, you know, so I'm teaching there and Mobile in my studio and then, uh, and over at the Preserve Golf Club, just across the Mississippi line, do some stuff. And then I spend most of my other time now, um, down in, at Old Palm Golf Club in Palm Beach with a bunch of the guys that I, work with to play for a living and it's a it's a super spot so i'm fortunate to have some nice places to hang my hat tony i want to start by talking about the interview that you did just a couple of weeks ago with hal sudden yeah mm-hmm. um it's one of the best conversations that i've heard in a long time that the things that you guys talked about and the things that you brought out from hal's experience and some of the synergies that you guys have talk about the time you got to spend with him well, you know, like I said in the interview, you know, one of the my grandfather taught me how to play golf, uh, and and started my love affair with the game. And when he retired to Pinehurst, and you know, he retired young in his early early fifties, which same age as me now. And um, you know, he it, one of the first things I got to go watch was the uh, was the World Team Championship, and how was an amateur, and uh, the World Amateur Championship, and how how was uh he won that i mean he talks about he won the north south he won the world amateur and he uh something else that year at pinehurst so he had great you know he had great mem- fond memories of his success at pinehurst so, but that was one of the first you know big golf things i think as a kid growing up if you stay in this golf world you, 
you remember the first time you saw greatness and saw somebody that you knew was different than other people. And that was, you know, that was it with Hal. And so as, um, you know, I do the podcast tour coach and, and tried to think of different people. I, I wanted to have on one of my tour players and, and a, and a guy who just did his wedding this past weekend, Rick Lamb, great player and great guy, very, you know, very intellectual about it really likes to spend a lot of time talking to older players, guys that have done it. And, and Rick and I were talking about people that we'd like to talk to and that we'd like to, we would, that we'd like to pick their brain. And one of them was Hal. And so through some of the folks that I know at golf magazine, golf.com, I was able to get, uh, get his contact info and reach out to him. And he was, you know, he was really, really generous with his time, but, uh, uh, it was great. I thought it picked a lot of the things apart that it takes to be successful, right? And that it takes to be good at, to play at that level. And I think that, you know, in this world of social media, everybody's looking, everybody's looking for a quick fix. Everybody's, everybody, and I think we're guilty of it as teachers, to be honest. I spoke to some teachers and teachers in South Florida last week. I think everybody wants to go take a certification or every, everybody wants to read something that's going to give them the answers to, to every golf swing. And I think players are the same now, but I, I don't think that's what makes you successful. I mean, as teachers, we've got to learn to hang in there and grind it out and figure out cause and effect. And as players, you've got to learn to understand your own golf swing and, and, and learn, you know, be accountable to yourself. I think that was kind of really the message that Hal shared with us was, you know, it's, it's what's inside you and your ability to figure things out and your ability to learn to control the golf ball. Your ability to understand you and your swing, that's what makes you a great player, right? And uh, obviously had the front row seat to a lot of stuff with Tiger and some of the great players. You know, I think one interesting thing about Hal is he kind of, you know, he was still very good at the beginning of Tiger's career, but he played with a lot of the other greats, like the Nicholases and the Watsons and those guys coming up, you know, and, and Raymond Floyd. He talks a bunch about Raymond Floyd. So, you know, I think those, those to me are the interesting players that got to see kind of both worlds of, of great players I, I, and, and to really be able to say, hey, what were the commonalities? Or what were the traits that were common with them that made them great? Tony, one of the many things that stuck out to me during your conversation was how you guys talked about focusing more on the good shots that you hit and trying to replicate those instead of wondering why you hit a bad shot and trying to fix that one. Pros don't hit every shot perfectly. You guys manage your misses. You don't panic over them. Talk about the positive mindset of focusing on the good swing. Well, I, I go back to an early, one of my early, you know, is a young apprentice. This was in the earth, young teacher. This was in the Sandestin days. Actually, I was with uh, Hank Johnson and he was, uh, he was working with an LPGA player uh, at the time. Um, I think it was Sherry Steinhauer, but I'm not sure. And uh, anyway, you know, she, she hit a shot. And she said, you know, it wasn't a good shot. And she said, uh, what did I do there? And he replied, why do you want to do it again? <laughs> and I just remember <laughs> thinking, heck, I'd never say that to a student, right? You know, and looked at him, you know, kind of quizzically looked at him. And, he, you know, and, and I remember him telling me we were walking back to the computer, you know, with the video camera. And he said, you know, Good players need to understand what they do when they hit their good shot. And they need to go out there and they need to try to hit good shots, not worry about what they did on their bad shots. He, you know, he kind of shared that with me. 
And, you know, I think that's true. I think that the best players in the world know, and I think Hal kind of was talking about that. They know what they do when they hit good shots, and they, and they understand that, and they know what, they know what their deal is, what their thought is. And, and every player's different. I mean, you know, you see them rehearse things with crazy feels or whatever. But I think that the, I think that the majority of golfers out there play where they hit a bad shot and they like, they hook that one. So they're like, well, I don't want to hook the next one. So they're, they're trying to not do what the last swing did. And they don't go out there with any clear cut plan, any clear cut feel, any clear cut understanding of like what they need to do in their golf swing to hit their good shot, whether it's a draw, it's a fade, high, low, what, you know, slice, whatever. You know, you can play good golf even if you slice it 25 yards as long as you do it every time, right? We There's plenty of examples of guys out there that have won tour events and majors that curved it a bunch, right? But they they knew which direction it was going. And I think that uh, – I just think a lot of golfers do that. I think they're always trying to fix the last shot instead of having a clear-cut understanding of what they need to do to ref, to hit their good shot. Tony, you and Hal – talk about not only coaching and working with great players, but also essentially getting fired by them because the <laughs> moment they start not playing well, they blame the coach and not themselves. And Hal said something really great about that. He said, if as a player, you don't know how to blame you before you blame everything else, you're not going to be honest enough to be a really good player. Talk about that and how you yeah. deal with players that have that mindset. Well. I, I mean, we could talk for hours about this because I think part of that is the changing of our culture and you can argue whether it's good or bad or whatever. But, you know, I, I think that one thing I've had to learn and I'm always trying to get better at it is you have to learn that the firing part of the business is a firing part of what we do is part of the business, right? And, uh, but if you care about what you do and you're passionate about what you do and, and you, you know, I think that when you invest a lot of a time developing a young player or spending time with a tour player, you know, you, you've got a lot emotionally invested in it as well. They become like parts of your family. They become, you know, brothers or younger, you know, or, or uh, uh, like your own kids at times, right? So, you know, that when it, when it happens and it doesn't work out, especially to me when you've had some success, long-term success, long success, you know, it becomes difficult. Um, you know, I don't know, but, but I think that we're in a situation now because of every, what we talked about previously, where everybody wants immediate, like they, everybody thinks that somebody else walking down that range is going to have some answer that I don't have. Right. Or, you know, some guy with a track man or quad and a building, you know, on this side, on the other side of Atlanta is going to have he's going to have some info that's going to make him that much better that I don't have. Right. And, and I think that, uh, I think that in general, the, the, the generation coming up behind us, I think what we were trying to say is that like, they'd rather look for that person than admit that maybe the reason they haven't played as well, or the reason that they haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve is because of something they haven't done whether it's they haven't put in the work in the gym, which I think is critically important nowadays, or they haven't put the, you know, they haven't put the work in and the effort in to really understand it themselves or to commit to it or haven't practiced enough. I mean, there's a variety of reasons. Sometimes maybe they just hadn't had the guts to get it done when it, you know, I mean, sometimes 
And sometimes you just got to stack up and play good when it counts. <laughs> and it doesn't have anything to do with the golf swing, right? And so, you know, I think it's easier to fire coaches and fitness trainers and mental coaches than it is than it is to look in the mirror. And I, I've got one coming out, I, I, don't know if it's, I think it's this week, but with Smiley Kaufman, who I taught for a long time, to the end of college, through his two really good years on tour and Augusta and all that. And, and he talks about some of the bad – I mean, he never goes into detail, I mean, but we've all been through it. But, like, you know, you got lots of bad advice, lots of, you know, everybody basically telling you to do that stuff, right? Oh, this guy, this guy, go here, go there. Where I think is, you know, I think in most cases, the bouncing around and changing instructors really, really doesn't. I don't, I don't know that it pays off for many, for many players very much. I mean, I think you have some guys that have rebirths going to somebody with a new idea and a new set of eyes. You know, I think we did a nice job with that with Lucas Glover for five years and, and, you know, had some really good years. But I think in general, like, once you're really good and you're a tour player, man, I think you, I think your pattern's pretty set. And I think, you know, I think what, you know, I mean, I don't know that we're going to pick up a new player that's been playing 25, 20 years on tour, and we're going to totally change everything they do, and they're going to become the top 10 player in the world. I think, you know, um, so I, you know, I think, but I think that's kind of what we were talking about. Is like there is there is this there is this idea that like everybody else has got something better and they can give me the answer instead of looking in the mirror. And, and but I do think that that's what the best players in the world, from Tiger Woods to Jack Nicklaus to Raymond Floyd to Lee Trevino to all of them, to Hal Sutton. I mean, they all looked in the mirror and they they all blamed themselves, you know. And and uh, you you look listen to the list of those great players. Most of them didn't bounce around and change teachers. Tiger, I guess, could be kind of the outlier. But, I mean, you know, Tiger would probably be the only player that you could argue that changed teachers three, four, five times and still remain great, you know, whereas for most people that doesn't pay off. Tony, you're one of the top junior instructors in the game as well, and kids are different today than when we grew up. They have a higher level of expectation and oftentimes an entitlement that we never did. How do you reach them and approach them versus an adult coming to you for lessons? Well, I think as you go along, certainly when I started, um, you know, it was harder because I didn't have a track record. I kind of had these ideas in my head that I thought would make people better. And I had a great, like I said, I had a great background and a great upbringing, a great pedigree from the folks I had learned from Hank Johnson, Mark Wood, Wayne Flint, Tom Ness, and Atlanta, all these great players, teachers. But, uh, you know, I wanted to do my own thing. And, um, you know, it was harder. But then, I, you know, as I got, you know, once I got some good players, you know, my first really, really good player was Bobby Wyatt, who lives in Atlanta now. And, and uh you know, Bobby was one of the best players in the country. And so I kind of, we kind of came up as far as being good together and learning to deal with that level of, of, of playing and teaching. And I would ask him as a really good player, like, you know, what do you need to get better? And I, I just kind of always watched and watched what other good players wanted and needed. And I just said, well, heck, I'm just going to give that to these other kids coming up. And, and I, I remember being at the players championship and, uh, one of the first times I went to the players and walking and I watched all these players and they all had a fitness guy. They all had a mental coach. They all had this, they all had that. And I was like, well, well, why, why are we not doing that with developing young players? Not maybe not to the same extent, like will we overwhelm them? Cause I think the tour players get too many people hanging around them, but like, 
where we give them all the spokes and all the parts of the wheel that they need to, to be the best. And so that's kind of how I started with my approach of putting a team of folks around young people that help with development. You know, Colby Touye and Morgan Hale that work with me do unbelievable jobs. You know, Colby's one of the best in the world at what he does and Dr. Carton on the mental side. And, you know, and then we added, you know, then I started feeling like, heck, we've talked about like all the, the, the science, part of the game it started invading everything and everybody thought you had to have science and i was like well i didn't want to lose players because they just thought i was too old school and i didn't understand it so i added Scotland, a biomechanics expert we started doing stuff together so you know i've just always tried to fill what i think i've always tried to have really honest self-evaluation with myself at the end of the year and at various times in the year or times when you get fired and you sit there and you're looking like Say, well, what, what, what is it that, that I offer that is not as strong as other places? Or what am I lacking? Or what's my, or I, maybe the best part, way to say it is like, what's my weak part, right? What are my weaknesses? And so I've always tried to fill those weaknesses. And I've tried to do it by adding people that are great at it rather than me trying to become average at those things, right? Cause like, you know, I mean, hell, I'm never going to be a biomechanics expert. I mean, um, can't figure out how to turn on my TV half the time. So like, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so like I'm going to bring Scott Lynn in. And so, you know, I've just always, so like I've tried to build that team around young people. And then I think the last part is, is I've had been, I've just been fortunate to have some success and, and, and then the, you know, putting, I think that we owe it to those coming up behind us to get, to help them. And I, I, I don't force, but I strongly encourage my young, my good young tour players or even Lucas Glovers and those guys. When I was with Lucas for five years, like when he would, when we would work, he would go play golf with juniors that I've taught and make him spend, make them spend time with those players. And I think it's great for not only for the juniors, but it's great for the tour player. One, I think it, brings them back to reality and makes them realize where they started. And two, I think sometimes in coaching and explaining to people like with kids, like, oh, well, this is what you really need to be doing. It lets them reconnect with some things that maybe they, you know, maybe they let slide. Maybe they're not as, maybe they're not as attentive to as they need to be. Right. So I think that when you build that culture and you have adults and good players and you have good junior players that want to be good. And I think if you find those people, things i think you can create a pretty interesting culture that that helps push people to achieve the things that they want to do tony i want to get a playing lesson from you before i let you go and (laughs) one of the places that most of us struggle is with squaring the club face particularly our driver right on the tee we tend to be slicers because our face is Mm -hmm. open in relation to the path of our swing what's a drill that we can do to get our club face more square well, you know, I mean, I think the first thing you have to look at anytime somebody slices and somebody doesn't get the club face squares, you got to look at the grip, right? You know, and I think we're talking about recreational golfers here. I think the first thing you got to get them to do to make sure that grip isn't in the palm of the left hand or the lead hand if they're, you know, for a right-handed player, uh, you got to get that grip where it's a little bit more at the base of the fingers, which is going to allow the wrist and, you know, the wrists work correctly and hinge correctly. You know, and I think, you know, I think if you get, I think you fix a lot of face problems with grip. And then from there, 
you know, I think that so many golfers know the club. They want the club to go around them, especially if they're sliced and they have this idea the club's got the inside. And they start twisting or rolling the club around them instead of learning to hinge the club correctly. And I think, um, you know, understanding that as you take the club away, if you're a right-handed player, that that right wrist has to kind of hinge back, fold back, which kind of which kind of flattens the left wrist. Some people bow it out. I mean, I just want it square. I'm not going to be overly picky, but you know, as as you're taking it back, you can learn to hinge the right wrist, which flattens the left wrist, and you get that butt of the club kind of pointed out at the target line. You should have a pretty good square face, and if you can learn to do that motion and then just kind of move the club to the top with your pivot or your turn. You should have that club in a pretty good spot and a pretty good square face. And then from there, I think if you learn to get the face square, a lot of the downswing stuff starts to take care of itself because your body doesn't have to react to an open club face, right? You may now you the problem with doing this is you're probably going to not slice them. You're going to hit some pull hooks and you may hit some crummy shots at first, but you'll learn to recover from that. You'll learn to get the club. You'll learn to get the club in the right spot. Tony, before I let you go, let our listeners know. How can they follow you online, over social media, and listen to your great podcast? Well, you can you can go to dosweepersgolf.com, which is our website and has information on all our retreats and instruction and so forth. Um, or, you know, on Instagram, I post a lot of stuff at the Dosweeper on Instagram. We have a YouTube channel. Just look up Dosweepersgolf and uh, or go to any of the any of your avenues to listen to podcasts and check out the tour coach. And like you were so nice to talk about how that interview's up there. And we've got one with Smiley Kaufman coming out and, and uh, we've got some good stuff. It's generally very relaxed. Uh, a lot of it taped over dinners where I'm drinking red wine. So they get entertaining, but uh, I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to have me on because you do so much for our, for, you know, for our, you know, for what we're doing in golf. Right. And it's such a great sport and, and uh, you know, you're always supporting teachers and, and people that are trying to grow the game. So I'm very, very appreciative of all you do and, and for all the shout-outs you do. And and, uh, and I'm flattered that I was asked to be on your show. Well, that, that means a great deal to me, Tony. Thank you so much for that. And, and I hope, like I say, this is the first of many appearances that uh, we get to spend some time together and talk about, get your perspective on what's going on around the game and, and also sneak a, a playing lesson or two from you as well. But your show, the, the tour coach, is fantastic. And, and that conversation with Hal is one of the most important golf conversations I've heard in a long time. So kudos to you for what you do. Thank you so much. And I, you can count on having more of these conversations. I'm looking forward to doing it. Uh, uh, keep up all the great things you're doing. And I'll tell Eddie Dry. He said to tell you hello. I'm going to see him for dinner here in a few minutes uh, and all the strict time folks. But uh, keep up all the great things. I appreciate you, Tony. Say hello to Eddie for me as well. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll right. catch up soon. Thanks so much. That is the great Tony Ruggiero. R-U-G-G-I-E-R-O is the spelling of his last name. The Tour Coach Podcast is the name of his show. And at Dew Sweepers Golf is where you can find him on Twitter. Folks, I'm telling you, that conversation between he and Hal Sutton was as good as it gets. Very important conversation about where we are in the game of golf right now. They both are outstanding, and you know how much I love Hal Sutton. Tony was fantastic as well. He's a great coach, and he has a great show, and he does a lot of great things out there coaching for tour players, adults, and junior players as well. Like I say, I hope this is the first of many visits we get to have with Tony because he's fantastic, and I look forward to catching up with him again real soon.
All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Mark Lye, Jonathan Shusky, and Tony Ruggiero for joining me tonight. Scheduled to join me next week are our good friend, top instructor, and the host of the Golf Kingdom TV show, Rob Strana, will be here. Another great friend and my favorite author, Keith Hurston, will be back, as will top instructor Brandon Stukesbury. It's been a little while since we got to have Brandon as part of the show. Looking forward to catching up with him. And also looking forward to catching up with Russ Holden, founder of Caddy for a Cure. He and his team do such great work for our wounded veterans. So Russ is outstanding and really looking forward to having him back as part of the show. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcasting site and app out there. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Google Podcasts, Audioboom, Player.fm, Podbean. Folks, if you've got a favorite podcasting app, we're probably on that one too. Just type in Next on the T in the search bar. We'll probably come up. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to stay up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, you're going to find links to our recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you've got two hours or you've got 20 minutes, we've got great content available for you for free on our website. Folks, I can't thank you enough for choosing to listen to the show again tonight. I know you've got a lot of great golf podcasts out there to choose from. I am very thankful that you continue to make Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.